Standard Issue for all women. Welcome to episode 65 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm out of order. Not in general, just right now. Why are you out of order? Well, I'm usually second, aren't I? Oh, yeah. Clever. And me, not so much. (laughs) And I'm Jen Offord and my tonsils are tickety-boo. Coming up in this week's episode, we chat to Alice May Perkis, author of a new book, Life, Lemons and Melons, about getting breast cancer in her 20s and surviving being a survivor. Mick and I chat to Dr Julia Shaw, author of the new book, Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, about why you really, really want to squeeze that kitten, among other things. And as ever, I'll be chatting all things women's sport in Jenny Off the Blocks. And I do Disney's brother, Bear. But first... Escaping monkeys, special places in hell and racism for dummies. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. A ten minute scream into a pillow, but with louder screaming and more pillows. I think we can all agree that what the country really needs right now is another new political party. Yeah. Oh, wait. Because, hello, hell, it appears the willy of the people, Nigel Farage, has been given the go-ahead to create another pro-Brexit political party, imaginatively titled the Brexit Party. Wow. I'm guessing the Fantasist Party and the bigots (laughs) were both already taken. Farage claims if any Brexit decision is delayed beyond the end of March, he will stand in the next European elections in May, where he is confident of hovering up the votes of disaffected Tories. You know, the same people that are currently saying they will never vote again if Brexit doesn't happen. The party's other founder, Catherine Blakelock, told the Daily Telegraph that, quote, a number of hundred Conservative members had already been in touch to say they wanted to defect to the new party. A number of hundreds, you say? (laughs) Just to clarify, is that number one? (laughs) One hundred. One hundred. Just the one. So this is Nigel Farage, who doesn't believe in the European Union... But yeah. is currently an MEP. Yeah. Will stand again to be an MEP again. Yeah. For an institution that he doesn't believe in. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing an the only... An institution that he's profited out of for I was going to say, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the only reason he would do that is to keep, like, snuffling up that sweet, sweet European cash. Yeah. Sweet, sweet gravy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well done, Farage. What a principal man you are. Meanwhile, President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, echoed the sentiments of the nation last week as he spoke out about the pricks that took us into this shitstorm. In both a press conference and a tweet, in case we missed it, he quipped that he had been wondering what that special place in hell looks like for those that promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan of how to carry it out safely. As the likes of David Liddington, nope, me either, responded critically to what he called... Not the most brilliant diplomacy by Tusk, because the UK's diplomacy thus far in this situation has been top (laughs) notch. The rest of us began to also ponder what that fiery inferno might look like too. Let's hope that special place is full of red passports, disproportionately sized bananas and towel-clad sun loungers. Among other things she's facing mounting calls for, the Prime Minister also faces mounting calls to sack Transport Minister Chris Grayling after he gave a £13.8 million contract to run ferries between Ramsgate and Ostend to Jen and I. Not literally, (laughs) but it might as well have been, given that we also have no ferries. (laughs) The contract was cancelled on Friday. Friday! Friday! We've known that they haven't had any ferries 
for ages. Yeah. How has it taken that long? Oh, they haven't got any fucking ferries. <laughs> anyway, amongst the people queuing up to suggest Graylin should just go away was Remain figurehead Anna Subri, MP, who said, quote, the Prime Minister should be considering whether or not there is someone else who could do the job better. Those chimps who built a ladder at <laughs> Belfast Zoo, maybe. Come on, monkey overlords. Oh, it's about time, isn't it? And in keeping with the tradition of repeatedly interviewing people with no influence or relevance to the Brexit debate, narcissistic fuckstain Tony Blair was back in the news last week giving his two penneth worth. Again. In a wide-ranging interview with Sky News' Sophie Ridge on Sunday, Blair defended Prime Minister Theresa May, which she'll no doubt be grateful yeah. for, as he argued she's not evil. I praise it. Revealing that he'd spoken to Teabag, but refusing to clarify what the substance of said conversation was, Blair said, You should be able to disagree with someone in politics without considering them either badly motivated, evil, or people you want nothing to do with. I mean, that really does depend, doesn't it? Mm. You fancy a little game, Jen? Sure, why not? Which of these things is the odd one out? A campaign to stop upskirting, a global conference for women, stopping girls being subjected to FGM, Sir Christopher Chope. <laughs> yeah, easy one, I know. But just in case you are struggling, the first three demonstrably improve the lives of women while hurting absolutely no one. And Chope, he's just a cunt. I mean, what else can you say about the MP for Christchurch and perpetual objector who last week prevented the swift movement of a bill to ban FGM? Like his bid to sabotage legalisation to prevent upskirting, it won't stop it, it will merely delay it, which I doubt is little comfort to campaigners like Nimco Ali or anyone else who has been or is about to be subjected to female genital mutilation. All I will say is that if you live in his constituency and you voted for this fuckstick, you need to have a long think about what you've done and then never do it again. It's incredible, isn't it? Only good things could come from banning FGM or upscaling. Only a good thing could come from that. I tried to have a look into what his motivation... No, not his motivation, his excuse... Mm. And he said, oh, I just think that things shouldn't be passed quickly and should be debated properly. There is no debate. I don't understand. There is no debate. You're There's right. There's no debate. It is unequivocally bad. Anyway, talking of unequivocally bad. Yeah, quite well. Liam Neeson hit the headlines this week after he gave some real-life insight into his very particular set of skills. Yeah. Turns out they're a bit different to what we might previously <laughs> have imagined. A journalist for The Independent and, indeed, the entire world got something of a surprise at the press junket for Neeson's new film, Cold Pursuit, at which Neeson went well off script revealing how some years ago, after learning of the rape of a friend of his, he walked the streets for two weeks with a kosh, looking to start a fight with some, and I quote, black bastard, in the hope that he might kill them as retribution. But it's okay because he did some power walking afterwards and then he saw the error of his ways. The reaction to Neeson's shocking admission has been, I'm going to say shocking. Some say Neeson is just being honest about something he learnt valuable life lessons from, like it's not cool to go out looking to indiscriminately kill someone on the basis that someone of the same ethnicity once did a bad thing. I mean, we've all been there, right? We can all understand his logic, can't we? I mean, obviously, he said a massively racist thing. Mm. And yes, that is completely terrible. But I would like to also say to add on to that, his friend was raped and he made himself the centre of the story, which is also just freaking horrific. Exactly that. I also don't understand. This has the ring of a story that somebody uncovered a tape 
in which he said this 20 years ago, rather than something that he actively volunteered and gave us... I get the idea that maybe someone used to be a racist and then they stopped being a racist because they realised their beliefs were wrong. But when you're like, why was his first question, what ethnicity were they, as opposed to, are you all right, mate? (laughs) Anyway, do you want a bit of good news? Yes, please. Well, things are still as stable as a two-legged cow over in the US, but more hope arrived on the horizon this week when a fifth woman announced she was running for president by entering the Democratic primary. Minnesota Senator Amy Kablusha, who made her announcement outside during an actual snowstorm, came to more prominence, certainly outside of Minnesota, after she gave Brett Kavanaugh quite the time of it during his confirmation hearings for the role of Supreme Court Justice. She joins Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Tenacious E. Warren, (laughs) Kirsten Gillibrand and Tulsi Gabbard, and some dudes, in the race to stand against Trump in November 2020, which I think we can all agree cannot come soon enough. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we literally don't care how talented you are. Just sit there and look pretty as we delve into society's offerings and what it means to be a woman. And it was JD Sports getting the slow clap this week after it was forced to remove pictures of Scotland's official football kit from its website after facing accusations of sexism. The image of a woman donning the Scotland football kit, also wearing ripped jeans and posed legs akimbo, as opposed to the male version in which the models just look like, well, footballers, (laughs) was spotted by Simon Kemp. Kemp, who had been shopping for kits for his kids, contacted the Scottish Football Association and retailer JD Sports asking for an explanation as to the disparity. In a statement explaining why the image had been used in the first place, JD Sports said, We occasionally test alternative product styles online to appeal to the full range of customers who visit our site. From those interested in high fashion and athleisure to sports people and football fans at looking what what athleisure athleisure it's like when people wear tracksuits but they don't actually exercise okay that's athleisure okay. Yeah. that's a fancy word for slobbing out clothes isn't yes it? Okay. it is yeah football fans looking for kits and training equipment while the principal images used for this product online were modelled in the traditional sportswear style. An alternative fashion-led image was tested for a short time. I am interested in the concept of the Scottish football kit potentially being regarded as high fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I look forward to seeing February's Fashion Week shows modelled exclusively by pole vaulters. That would be great if they came in Mm. on a pole vault. Yeah. Yeah. On a pole vault, whatever. On On a a pole. pole Vaulting. (laughs) Vaulting. (laughs) This is why you come to me for the sports (laughs) chit-chat, Jen. Oh, hey, Birmingham. Get you looking all capital of the Midlands. And we will be in you on March the 24th for a cracking event at the Town Hall as part of Podfest Birmingham, where we're joined by Jess Phillips MP, Beverly Knight and the boss, Sarah Millican. More info and indeed tickets can be found at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. But you better be sharpish as they are selling damn fast. Hiya, Mickey here. I caught up with award-winning blogger, business coach, photographer, podcaster and social media guru Sarah Tasker to chat Instagram, her new book, Hashtag Authentic, Stealth Feminism and how to navigate social media with your soul intact. I kicked off our chat by asking why Sarah decided to write a book. 
I guess it's the book I wished had existed three or four years ago when I was at an earlier stage of my business. So it's all of the lessons I've learned about how to grow an audience online, how to kind of find your community and build something with a purpose by sharing beautiful pictures and sharing words and sharing your story. But how to kind of navigate that line as well between I want to play the system enough to grow. I want to kind of play the game, but I also do not want to sell out and compromise all of my values. Mm -hmm. So trying to bring all of that together in one book with lots of pictures as well. One of the things I really love is that you're warm and you're really encouraging, but there's also some stealth feminism in there. (laughs) I love that. I've never heard that phrase before. Stealth feminism, but I'm going to be stealing it because, well, it's in everything, isn't it? Like feminism is a part of everything we're doing. And I don't think you can talk about building a platform and having a voice without acknowledging the fact that like, especially as women, this is a new opportunity. Uh And that's part of the reason a lot of people don't want us to do it. There's still a lot of resistance, I think, about women having a voice and being publicly heard. When and why did you fall in love with Instagram? Because it sort of rescued you. I feel like it did. I was working for the NHS in speech therapy, and then I got pregnant, went on maternity leave, and was stuck at home in in this house in the part of Manchester that like it just really didn't feel like my home in fact my now husband had bought it with his ex-partner so it felt like I was not at home in that place ghosts yeah exactly like oh it was it was just a really strange kind of time in my life now I look back and I was at home and anyone who's got newborn can probably relate you spend a lot of time on your own not doing very much feeling quite terrified of your life Instagram was like my window to the outside world because I'm not really a toddler group person like that involves quite a lot of face-to-face interaction (laughs) with people you don't know that wasn't for me I could sit on my sofa and have a baby asleep on me and just talk to people and kind of engage it gave me a bit of a purpose of finding something every day that was worth taking a picture of and sharing even if that was just some fruit on a windowsill because I hadn't left the house In the intro of Hashtag Authentic, you talk about how all the things that you had a talent for, like clearly photography, you've got that wonderful eye. You just sort of pushed them down because you didn't think that you'd be able to do anything with them. People like me don't do things like that. So that was it. I just, I didn't even think that they should really be hobbies. I would have felt quite shy about calling them hobbies. And yet now here we are not that long on and it's actually my whole job. It's your whole job and you're encouraging people. Yeah, well, and that's why I'm so encouraging because I think it's incredibly common, especially for women. We feel like imposters, whatever we're doing, Mm -hmm. but we especially feel like imposters if we're doing something that no one else around us is doing. There's lots of research, isn't there, that says that like men will generally take the leap just as soon as they have the idea. They'll kind of be like, okay, I'm going to launch this business or I'm going to be a photographer. I'll tell everyone I'm a photographer. Whereas women, we much prefer to go and get multiple qualifications and kind of over-prepare and think we have to have all the kit. And even then might just say, well, I'm an amateur photographer. And it takes a lot more for us to feel like we're valid. So I hope that the book helps people feel like actually it's valid right now it's valid if all you've got is an iphone and you're just sticking them up on instagram and then your mum looks at them that still counts as photography i love that this wonderful businesswoman who has created this whole community is just just wants us to have the confidence of an average white dude (laughs) we're not aiming too high are we Sarah, where can people find you on Instagram? So on Instagram, I am at me and Orla. There's underscores between all those words. 
don't ask. It's a really complicated way of having a handle, but it's too late to change it now. Orla is my little girl. So when I started my account, it was just me and Orla, and it's kind of grown. So my website is meanorla.co.uk, and you can find all my social media handles there, Twitter, Pinterest, all the places that I waste my time. If you want to hear more of my chat with Sarah and find out what Luke Skywalker did with his pants when he discovered she's a huge fan, then the full-length interview is one of this week's Sunday Chops. Hit subscribe on iTunes or Acast and it'll be there waiting for you. And Sarah's book, Hashtag Authentic, which is a real thing of beauty, is out on February the 21st and available for pre-order now. Jen and I are here with Alice May Perkis, author of a new book, Life, Lemons and Melons. This tells the story of how you were diagnosed both with depression and with breast cancer. Yes. In the same year. Yes. Age 26. (laughs) Yes, it was a a hoot and a half, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this book started as a blog. Yes. Which you say you started for selfish reasons as opposed to altruistic reasons. Absolutely, yeah. I started my blog very, very soon after I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015. And actually, within minutes of being diagnosed, I actually said to my husband, well, it's going to make really good blog content. And he was like... (laughs) You are a weirdo. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I started the blog because I knew that people were going to ask, be asking me a lot of questions. And I knew that chances are I wasn't going to want to answer those questions a million times over. And so I thought, if I blog about it, then those questions will be answered and I can just direct people to my blog. And I also decided to try and start getting more and more people to check their boobs as well because... I thought if I was going to go through this thing, um, if I could get one person to check their boobs more regularly, then it would be sort of worth it. (laughs) It was at 26, to be honest. I wasn't thinking about checking my boobs. I'm 36 and I don't think about it very much. Ah, well, you should. (laughs) How common is breast cancer at that age? It tends to be a disease which affects older women, sort of over 50, but then sporadically you do get younger women who get it it's very very rare under the age of 30 it does happen I'm an example of that you say in this that there were two key buts Mm. involved in your diagnosis where people were in a situation where they probably could have not investigated further given your age which is quite I mean, fortunate wouldn't be the right word for that, would it? (laughs) No, I think fortunate is the right word. You know, at at any point in from when I first went to the doctors to getting diagnosed, the system could have failed me. And, you know, it does happen where people don't get their diagnosis picked up as early as they should because younger women just aren't expected to have breast cancer. So I was fortunate that the system really, really worked very well for me. So I went to the GP. The GP said... Um, I'm pretty sure this is just a cyst, but I'm going to send you to the breast clinic to get it checked out. And then I went to the breast clinic and the surgeon said to me, I'm 95% certain this is not a bad lump. And to be fair to him, the odds were probably more like 99% Mm. not a bad lump. And then he said, but I'll send you down for imaging. I went down for imaging and they did a biopsy. And then three weeks later, cancer. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, my my mum's had breast cancer. I know quite a few people that have had breast cancer and you kind of have a rough idea of how you feel like you might react to things. Mm. And there's some really interesting stuff in your book that 
showed me that you know what what do we fucking know until we're there <laughs> i mean i find it really interesting you said that one of the first things that you thought about when you felt this overwhelming sense of guilt that you were going to have to go around breaking this news to yeah. people that you had breast cancer yeah the day i was diagnosed my mum knew that I'd, I'd been to the hospital she knew that i'd had scans she knew that i'd had a biopsy and she knew that they'd called me back in and my family lived like 300 miles away in yorkshire and the the first thing I thought when they said to me, it's cancer, was, how the hell do I tell my mum? It was just that moment. Yeah, I just felt guilty. I just felt guilty that I was going to be putting this on all of my family and my friends. I felt awful telling people. And uh, there was one friend. <laughs> me and my husband basically wrote a list of who we had to tell, and we split it in half. And so he told half of the people on the list, and I told the other half. And that list actually ended up being the list of people that we invited to our wedding. But... Yeah, one of our friends, he knew that I'd been for tests and Chris, my husband, rang him and he was absolutely hammered in a taxi oh. <laughs> um, after being on a night out in London. Yeah, the guilt is real with telling people. So when you were doing your blog, did you feel you created some sense of community? Because, you know, it, it's quite clear you were the youngest person you encountered dealing with this while you were actually at the hospital. Yeah. Did you come across other people online who'd had the same experience at that age? Definitely. Within a couple of weeks of being diagnosed, um, my surgeon introduced me to someone else who was a little bit older than me, and she was also having surgery through the same guy, treatment at the same hospital. So You had a mastectomy, didn't you? Yes, yeah, I had a mastectomy. Um, and... It was like two weeks after my mastectomy, I think, that I met this girl. We just we became really good friends, and she she's mentioned in the book, actually, a few times. And as well as that, in those early days of me posting about getting people to check their boobs more regularly, a friend shared my post saying, check your chebs, because that's what I call boobs. Mm. And that post was then read by one of her friends who I didn't know, I'd never met. And she found a lump when she checked her boobs and she went to the doctors and found out that she had cancer. So the three of us, Izzy, me and Kate, Kate being the one who found the lump because of my blog, which is mad, and Izzy, the one I was introduced to at the hospital, we became like a really tight-knit group and we kind of all went through treatment together. But then the internet has become an amazing place for younger women or younger people generally to talk about their cancer experiences and the conversation's really, really opening up and there is a real community of of people going through cancer together. And yeah, definitely I get comments on my blog even now saying, oh, I've just been diagnosed, I found this really helpful. And that's kind of why I wanted to write the book as well. I never want anyone else to feel as alone as I did in those early days and I thought if I could write something to say, hey, this is what happened to me, and this is how I dealt with it, then it might be helpful. Yeah, feel the need to point out it's actually funny. It's it's not, it, considering the subject matter. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. I talk a lot about mental health as yeah. well, so it's kind of about how the two go together. And yeah, whenever whenever anybody says like, oh, you've written a book, what's it about? I'm like, um, it was about cancer and depression, but actually it's funnier than it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> heavy on the lulls. Yeah. The most interesting thing that you say in this book is that what it's like to be the person that surviving surviving mm -hmm. as, as you've said and you say that before and after cancer the version of you before cancer and the version of you after cancer are like identical twins yeah. in that you are exactly the same but totally different yeah. 
I'm still made up of all of the same constituent parts, right? So, I'm, I mean, apart from the fact that I've got a, a fake boob now, <laughs> the rest of me is pretty much the same, apart from a, skew, a few scars here and there. I am exactly the same in so many ways. I still stand for the same sort of things. I've still got a lot of the same personality traits. But then also, I'm so different as well. There's no part of your life that cancer doesn't touch. It affects absolutely everything. And you can't not be changed by that, whether you want to or not. And I think, yeah, the twin thing, that's something I actually said to somebody. Somebody, um, One of my friends was messaging me in, in the early days of my recovery. She said to me, she's like, do you feel different? And I was like, yes, but also, no, I feel exactly the same. My views are all the same, maybe a little bit more heightened and a little bit more aggressive with my views um, than I was before. Can we talk about Copperfield, which you are yeah. involved in? You're a trustee yeah. of... So Copperfield is um, a breast cancer awareness charity that was set up 10 years ago in October by the incredible uh, Helenga twins, Chris and Maren. Copperfield was set up after Chris was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer when she was 23. She was one of those people for whom the system didn't work as well as the system worked for me. She found a lump and it took, I think it was eight months for it to get diagnosed. And by the time she got her diagnosis, the cancer had spread outside of her breast, meaning that it had become incurable. And so she decided that she didn't want this to happen to anyone else. She said that she never knew that she should be checking her boobs, and she decided to start going into schools and talking about it. And she began spreading the message of how important it is to check your boobs on a regular basis. And now it got the first female nipple on daytime TV last year, which was pretty cool. There's so many facets to it, but I'm also a boobette for the charity, um, and they're basically boob ambassadors and we go into schools colleges workplaces basically anywhere that will have us to bang on about bangers um, <laughs> and the importance of checking yourself but yeah Copperfield is just an incredible charity they've made a massive difference and they get messages all the time saying thanks to you I found a lump I found it early and my treatment's going really well so they are actually changing lives which is pretty incredible we're all gonna now go and check our boobs obviously <laughs> good not immediately that would be weird I'm do my now <laughs> She really is. Um, so what should we be looking for? There are more signs and symptoms to breast cancer than just a lump. So checking your boobs is about how they look and how they feel. People tend to think that it's just a lump. But there are like seven signs and symptoms. And you're now really testing it because I usually have a PowerPoint behind me that tells you exactly what they are. But it's feeling for like lumps or thickening. If there's any kind of crusting or rashes around your nipple, if there's any discharge from your nipple, that's something to get checked out. If one of your boobs is bigger than the other one constantly, um, that's worth getting checked out. Um, what else? What is one of them dimpling? Am I dimpling, yeah. Dimpling is absolutely one. Um, so if you've got any dimpling or puckering, that's something to talk to your GP about. But basically, I think the important thing to remember is there's no right or wrong way to check your boobs. The best thing to do is just do it on a monthly basis so you know what's normal for you. Yeah. And if you find something that isn't normal for you, then you can go straight to your GP and, and talk to them about it and they'll be able to advise you. There's loads of stuff on Copperfield's website about how to check your boobs. I would say just do it once a month and make sure you know what your normal is. Great. If people want to get a hold of your book, which is Life, Lemons and Melons, where will they be able to find that? Um, so you can find it on Amazon. If you search Life, Lemons and Melons, um, it's on there. And you can also buy it directly from my blog, which is www.alicemayperkis.co.uk. That's great. Thanks so much for coming in, Alice. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
Hi, Hannah here. Just so as you know, we've got a load of great interviews coming your way in the coming weeks and months. I went up to the part frozen north to meet writer Lisa Holdsworth to talk about the complicated life and early death of playwright Andrea Dunbar. Jen met the brilliant Jessica Hines to chat about her new film, The Fight. And all three of us went to the set of HBO's Gentleman Jack, I shit you not, and grabbed some time with its creator and director, Sally Wainwright. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these chats with brilliant women, please subscribe, either on Acast or iTunes. Hello, we are joined by Dr Julia Shaw, criminal psychologist and research (laughs) associate at UCL, and also the author of the new book, Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. And also... Hello, Mickey here. Yeah. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, so nice to be here. Tell us a bit more about the book and what what it's about and and why. So I've always been fascinated by why people do bad things. I mean, effectively, the whole thing is a manifesto against using the word evil. Uh, Yes. It's been pointed out to me more than once that it's quite funny that evil is on the cover. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I argue against the word evil. I think that we risk dehumanizing others as soon as we bring out the word. It's usually the end of a discussion, which is a really problematic thing. And I think that um, there's this lack of insight that comes along with using the word. Because evil is always something that other people are. Mm. What I wanted to know, because you you are very clear in that you don't really believe in evil. And I kind of want to use it in inverted commas all the time, but mm-hmm. rabbit's ears don't really work on a podcast. But that's what I'm doing. But why do you think we're so quick as a society to deem someone evil? Because we're lazy. Oh, okay. Your <laughs> yeah. brains true. are really lazy. No, I mean, your brain is constantly trying to conserve resources. And it's really hard to make decisions. And it's really hard to weigh up all the different factors that may have led to someone, for example, committing a crime. And you a, don't have the context. You don't know all the factors for somebody mm-hmm. else's life and why they may have chosen to do something, um, which you do have for your own life. So it's easy to find excuses, right? So you may, have, may do something that's bad, but you know why you did it. And there's a reason for it or there's context for it, which you don't have for others. And so it's easy to forget that with other people. And I think instead of trying to actually figure out what those factors may have been and to understand the person and the reasons for this behavior, we just say that person is evil. So, I mean, I don't actually believe in evil either. I think, like, it's too biblical a concept Mm. for me personally. People are obviously born and things happen to them and whatever. Mm -hmm. I think there's usually a reason why someone does something bad. And obviously you've got evil and then you've got psychopathy Ooh, I guess you know? we can get back to that go on which is fascinating and that's in you know that's people aren't psychopaths because they're inherently bad that's a that's a mental illness right I, I love the psychopathy example you give I can't remember the scientist's name but you'll be able to where he was getting the brains of psychopaths and he held the perfect one in his hand and it was his brain, like a photo of his brain. It was his own, yeah. 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 James Fallon. So James Fallon, uh, yeah, he was scanning the brains of psychopaths who were convicted of murder. And he was looking through whether he could spot the brain of a psychopath. And so he's looking at all these scans going, psychopath, not psychopath, psychopath, not. I mean, he was comp- comparing them to controls, so comparing them to other people in prison who weren't psychopaths. And he found that you could identify quite reliably the brain of a psychopath just by looking at a picture of it. And yeah, as you said, it was quite funny is that he had this moment where he was holding a brain. He said, well, obviously, this is the brain of a psychopath. And then he realized it was his own. Uh, And then he went back and he did some digging into his own history. And he realized that there were lots of murderous individuals in his background. And he came out with the label saying, maybe I am a psychopath, but I'm a pro-social psychopath. But I think it's a, a powerful example of how we get psychopathy wrong. 
I think that there is this idea that there are these monsters lurking and psychologists diagnose them as such. I mean, it's the way we talk about psychopaths is completely absurd. Well, it's a scale, isn't it? it well, there's that, but also it's, I mean, there's things like it's probably related to things like autism as well. It's related to lack of empathy. It's related to lack of being able to socialize with others, probably. And a lot of people who are, we colloquially refer to as psychopaths probably aren't. And then we randomly throw in the word sociopath, which is yeah. a different thing entirely. So what, what is the is differentiation? You, there's a psychopathy checklist. There's a set of criteria that we can use to diagnose someone. We can look at people's brains. We don't do that very often, but we, we can hypothetically. I love that the cusp is 30, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so well, it depends on where you are. It's yeah. 25 or 30 oh, right, okay. for the score that you need to be classified as a psychopath. But according, according to John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test, and I do just want to get some clarity from an expert on this, if you've considered that you might be a psychopath, you're probably not. No, that's total bullshit. Damn. Sorry, John Ronson. <laughs> I thought I was safe. I think there's a lot of, again, uh, it's easy to popularize uh, concepts like this and maybe lose some of the nuance because it's much more fun to think there's these scary monsters hiding amongst us who are psychopaths and have no empathy and are likely to kill each other or kill us than to think actually we're probably all human and we probably all have the potential for these things in us. That's it, isn't it? It's that remove. It's Mm. othering. Mm. Totally. So that we don't, well, I would never do that. So I need a word for, and it's like, well, because somewhere in there we know that we're all capable of it. Well, that's not fun. I think some of us, do. Oh shit, I've just given something away, haven't I? <laughs> we do, but we don't, right? I mean, I think it's it's why we like watching things like Dexter as well. We like watching sort of a psychopath and sort of seeing it from their perspective. But it's also, at the one hand, we're trying to empathize. On the other hand, it's like, oh, but I can remove myself and I'm not like that. So it's almost consoling to ourselves that we'd mm. never be that terrible. But I love your bit on like acute aggression where mm. you just want to like squeeze it because it's really cute. Yeah. So why is that? Why do we <laughs> uh, pseudo aggressive acts? I got curious about this because I have this. I have a you wanted to kill a kitten, didn't you? No, not quite. <laughs> but I, I do. I struggle with kittens and puppies. I very much struggle to cope with. Just the fundamental aspect. <laughs> oh God, they're so cute. <laughs> but I also have it with my partner. Yeah. Um, so I have it with your partner as well. Sorry, that sounded like <laughs> that's weird. We're not at that chapter yet. <laughs> yeah, I have it with my partner in that I, I sort of love him so much. I just want to like squeeze him and slap him a little bit, but not in a way that actually hurts him. And so the question arose as to why do I have this feeling? And does this mean I'm likely to be violent? Because I'm not. I don't think I wouldn't classify myself as a violent person. Good to know. <laughs> um, it's a small room. But there's a question, right, that I think for a lot of the things that I talk about in the book in terms of at what point should I be worried? And I guess my question was for cute aggression, at what point should I be worried? At what point might this be indicative of something darker, deeper lurking inside? And turns out that wanting to... Uh, you obviously don't go through with it, luckily. And it's a what's called a dimorphous display of emotion. So what's happening, according to evolutionary psychologists, is that your brain, because it's being overloaded by one emotion, which is positivity, so happiness or joy or cuteness, right, effectively, Mm -hmm. your brain shoots out the opposite emotion so that it doesn't overload. And so it's the same reason why we cry when we're happy or why we smile or laugh at a funeral. So it's, it's these emotions that don't actually fit together, but our brain's trying to protect itself by not having too much of any one. Cute animals that actually make me cry. A lot. <laughs> a it's lot. true. It's it's a thing. Is it? Have yes. you seen this? Have you witnessed this? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like yeah. the other week. Depends on how hormonal I'm feeling, but definitely. It wasn't even hormonal. Really? There was no excuse for it. Oh. So normally, like hormonal, yeah, whiskers out, but I'm done. <laughs> Game over. 
but I wasn't even hormonal. So is that the same thing, basically? It's it's the same idea, but it's it's this overwhelming feeling. And so the, the those would be what I would consider pseudo aggressive sort of expressions. This idea Uh-oh. that I, oh, I just want to squeeze it is not it's not real aggression. And so then in the book I go on to explore well what is real aggression and things like passive aggression. I mean we've got Valentine's Day coming up. Um, and the person we like to hurt the most in terms of real psychological and physical hurt is unfortunately often our partners as well as the person who we love the most in the world. So there's this weird dynamic, and partly that's because they're around most of the time, and so they can, they're easy targets. And it pisses off a lot more because yeah. it's constant. Yeah. yeah, and there's strong emotions involved. And so uh, I move from the pseudo-aggressive acts into, in, into passive aggression. And so things like intentionally not doing something, where you can say, you know, well, I didn't do anything. <laughs> but you did, and you did intentionally to frustrate yeah. somebody else, up to harder aggression up to things like murder so how do where do we land like how do we land at much more extreme things and at what point are the are those are those boundaries do you think that we are all capable of the lazy word evil yes i wanted to call the book you are evil (laughs) i am absolutely convinced that every single human being on the planet is capable of doing horrible things in the book you're sort of encouraging us to empathize with Mm -hmm. with Evil, in inverted commas. So why is it so important? I think it's really important for us to do thought experiments and to think about how we, hence the empathy bit, might react or be if we were placed in a certain situation or certain, uh, given certain predispositions. Because I think that it's really easy for us when times are good to not prepare for when times are bad. And by that I mean psychologically, by that I mean financially, by that I mean like times of war we're totally underprepared for right now, I think, because we've never had it, luckily. Mm. But if you're suddenly in a situation where you have to make incredibly difficult decisions and you've never thought about them before and you've not introspected and tried to get to know your own tendencies and your own morality, I think you're much more likely to make terrible decisions. And so I think it's really important for us to constantly be thinking about who am I really? What is this? What can I learn from science? In my case, I, I like the scientific explanations, sort of what can we learn from research on this to explain our own tendencies? Again, at what point is it problematic? Things like dehumanizing others, where that can lead us, and that we're constantly a bit more on alert and fighting that lazy brain that we have, and introspecting, making much more active decisions. Mm. Because I think that the problem is when we don't do that, is that we just we risk effectively becoming, if you will, evil. Because we, we risk not understanding or enacting our own moral guides and this labeling that we do mm-hmm. is incredibly subjective so it you know is. someone's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist mm-hmm. so i guess that's lazy so I, I don't know how do we get around that uh, I, again, it's uh, trying to find the humanity, I think, in everyone. So in And this was, for me, it's something quite challenging. So I talk about a couple of issues in the book. I, I specifically try to pick both everyday examples, but also try to pick things that, for me personally, are some of the hardest to talk about and understand. And so that includes things like uh, really deep stuff like sex slavery, which for me is I like an unfathomable kind of human behavior. But we know that slavery is widespread in the world, and how do we understand that? And so for me, that was a really difficult issue to delve into and understand. But you're still trying to figure out the humanity, trying to understand how people can deal with humans as a transactional sort of profit-making machine, which a lot of us do. And this is where you can also dovetail Mm. it back into other things that we act like when we buy cheap stuff. Like sometimes we're not that far away from slavery-type setups and so I think there's gradients in all this and I think it's really important to delve into them 
Do you like making people uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I mean, I have a whole chapter on pedophiles. Uh, I think yeah. this might be the first popular science book ever written that has a whole chapter on pedophiles. See, that's something I wanted to touch on. Um, and that is because I think when you ask people to grade evil, yeah. again, we're going to just use it in inverted commas, they are up there. Pedophiles yeah. are up there. And what I find problematic about that is because there's very little discussion because it immediately gets shut down. There's mm-hmm. no understanding about why they behave this way or very little because no one wants to empathize. And it just means that it's yeah. never going to get sorted. No, right. no one's looking into it because it's too uncomfortable. Right. Which is, I think, the idea of things being taboo in terms of certainly discussion, I think is really problematic. I think we need to be able to talk about why people do anything. How you talk about it, of course, you shouldn't just freestyle and, I don't know, be respectful in how you share uh, your, your discussion. But I think it's crucial that we talk about these things. And especially if something makes us uncomfortable, we're probably onto something that we really need to talk about. And with pedophilia, I mean, they are, by a lot of the the wider public, they're seen as the people we would want the death penalty back for. I mean, by parents quite often, there's this idea of, oh, I don't even want to think about it. But again, when you see the prevalence and of both the, the sexual proclivities to, for pedophilia and related kinds of attraction to underaged individuals. Uh, We see that there's a huge amount of people who have these tendencies and they have practically no support. And so if we want to stop people from acting these out, we need to be much more active in talking about it and giving support to people who have these dispositions in the first place. Otherwise, our kids just aren't going to be safe. So I didn't actually know about this. Godwin's Law. What I mean, is Godwin's Law? Effectively, the law that every online discussion will at some point end up in a Hitler comparison. Why? Because I, can, I mean, I could could easily say because people are lazy, and Hitler is the king of evil. I mean, not in a glorified way, but it, like he ticks all the boxes of evil. But I think that it's really easy when you disagree with someone to just shut down the conversation and bring in Hitler and say you are like Hitler or this is like Hitler. Boom, done. Or Nazi, I, Nazi, or is Nazi. The go-to, also, isn't isn't it? yeah. it's fascinating because there's a lot of discussion, and this sort of you know touched on what Mickey said earlier about one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, mm. but. There was all this chat the other week about Winston Churchill. I don't know if you caught that, whether or not he was a you know mass mur- murdering white supremacist. I believe he was. I didn't actually as. catch that. And then there's been a huge debate about it mm. on Twitter with various people getting involved, saying like, you, well, "You can't say that because then if you say that, what's Hitler?" <laughs> so I think we can have more than one. Can't we? I mean, I'm not advocating for it, but like you know, it's yeah. possible. The atrocities that were committed by Hitler and the Nazi regime were incredibly well documented. They're incredibly systematic. I mean, they have all the hallmarks of what we might associate with psychopathy in terms of like planned, meticulous, manipulative. You're right. And I, but I think because of the nature of the documentation and the way that it has permeated our discourse, which is also a really good thing, we do forget about other atrocities and other countries and other parts of the world. I mean, this mm. is the other thing. Partly Eurocentric view, potentially, and, and Amerocentric because of involvement. It's it's the default example still in it. Unfortunately, I'm sure at some point there'll be another one. But for now... On that bombshell. Julia, where can people find out more about you and about making evil the book as opposed to, you know, causing mischief? (laughs) I mean, you can buy the book on Amazon. So Making Evil, the science behind humanity's dark side. I I always want to say something, something dark side. Um, (laughs) I think that's good. I liked it. But uh, yeah, you can can Google it. You should be able to find it on Amazon or your local bookstore. You can also learn about me at drjuliashaw.com and learn about my research. And you're on Twitter as well. I am on Twitter, at drjuliashaw. It's very consistent, my brand. And the book is available as of the 7th of February. As of the 7th of February. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, and any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we administer a sliding tackle on the patriarchy as we talk all things women's sport. A big story in sports news this week was a chat between BT Sport presenter Jake Humphrey and pundit Rachel Finnis-Brown. Finnis-Brown, who, for the uninitiated, began her playing career in the US collegiate system back in 1998 and went on to be a goalkeeper at Liverpool, Everton, Arsenal and, indeed, for England, with over 80 international caps under her belt. In a special discussion filmed for the Sports Channel, Humphrey called out sexism in football and, in particular, the abuse levelled at female pundits such as Finnish Brown and Alex Scott, who's over on Sky. He accused the industry of pretending everything is fine and added there needs to be outcry. Damn straight. I think fair play to Humphrey for having a go, and it is good because whether we like it or not, we do actually need men to do this. We need them to get behind it because we need to change the hearts and minds of those benefiting from the status quo. And so it's those guys who have to make a fuss because, you know, we're just women. Who gives a shit, right? But I felt a little bit weird about watching Finnis Brown essentially explain why she's qualified for the role. I just think if you have to ask, well, you know, fuck off. Part of that conversation was about tokenism. Humphrey highlighted Finnish Brown's objections to tokenism. She says that she'd hate to think she was there just because she's a bird. Actually, I, I really don't. I really don't. I think with women, with the LGBT community, people of colour, fuck it, give them the platform because it's never going to improve until we do. And so I will neatly link back to this point after a quick dissection of former professional footballer Owen Hargreaves' contribution to the debate. Hargreaves noted, this is a direct quote, FYI, Rachel gave some terrific insights, which I haven't even heard from male players. Not even heard it from male players? Cripes, she must be good. He also added that the sexist views his colleague had been subjected to were, and this is another quote, a little bit outdated, he said before Humphrey reminded him, that's why it's sexist. I mean, I'm not sure that necessarily follows. I don't think that's why it's sexist, but the two are intrinsically linked, shall we say. Anyway, I don't mean to be rude to Hargreaves. I'm sure his heart was in the right place, but is that what we're calling an acceptable level of insight? Is it? Okay, cool. Well, one person who's spoken up this week about getting women's sport on the box is Sports Minister Mims Davis. No. Me either. Anyway, in a speech made this week, she said, Equality means visibility. Whoever we are, we have the right to be inspired by diversity in sport that shows the best in all of us. I urge sports bodies, broadcasters and the wider media to do better. Now, this is a sentiment I'm sure that regular listeners will know I can very much get behind. But the time has come to stop urging. And back to that point about quote-unquote tokenism, urging just it's not good enough anymore. Make them. Make them do it across all sports media. And I tell you for why. Because it's a fucking health inequality as well as a social one. The BBC have a rule that there needs to be at least one woman on every comedy panel show. Why not sport? 
Why not? My personal view is that there needs to be a woman on Match of the Day. And Barry from Romford, I don't give a fuck if you don't like it. On to some actual sport, rather than just, you know, my angry thoughts about it. In rugby, as you know, the Six Nations is underway and it was another cracking weekend for England, who beat reigning champions France 41-26 to take a three-point lead at the top of the table. A slightly less exciting game that took place between Wales and Italy ended 3 all. I didn't even know that was possible in rugby. Anyway, well, Ireland beat Scotland 22-5. That put Scotland bottom of the table, Wales just above and Ireland in fourth place, Italy a second and France third. There's a week off now before the third round on the 23rd and 24th of February. And in football, I would just like to draw your attention to the Women's Championship, if I may, where Tottenham are top of the table in the second highest tier in women's football. And in second place, lads, admittedly only by the teeniest margin on goal difference, is um, Charlton Athletic. I'm not going to say anything else because I am the football kiss of death. Yes, I am. So that's all. That's, That's all I'm saying. And that is all, in fact, from me this week. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you want to witness me consistently jinx any football team I express a fondness for, you can do so by following me over on Twitter, at InspiraGen. Hello, Hannah again. Just to let you know that this Sunday's Chops is one that you won't want to miss. I suppose all of them are ones that you won't want to miss, but this one is great. As part of our series celebrating LGBT History Month, we're talking to comedian, actress and all-round gem Rosie Jones about her lesbian icons in comedy, dating as a disabled person and what it was like to actually have a good year in 2018. That's released on Sunday, but if you've not yet listened to the rest in the series, get that done too. We've got comedians Kate McCabe and Deborah Jane Appleby talking representation for LGBT women in popular culture. And in part two, I spoke to Olivia Potter-Hughes from the NUS-USI about the battle for marriage equality in Northern Ireland. Yes, we're spoiling you. Yes, you're welcome. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. I'm not Mickey. This is weird, isn't it? Isn't it? Dunleavy. What Disney did you do this week? This week, I watched Brother Bear, which is something I'd kind of been dreading Mm. a little bit because I read that it was about Inuits and I thought, oh God, it's going to be Pocahontas all over again. I'm racist. It's 2003, is it? I don't know. It's 2003, yeah. Well done, Jen's on it with the facts today. Obviously got her eye on Mickey's job. There's only two left, Jen, but they're both yours if you want them. Well, it stars... People, Joaquin a lot of whom Phoenix. I didn't really know who they were apart from Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Yes. Did you watch it, Jen? I did, Hannah. Oh, good, because there's some words we can say later that I know you've been wanting to say for ages. Yep, yep. So, did you like it? It wasn't as shit as I thought it was going to be, I will say. That doesn't mean I liked it. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's good, but it certainly wasn't as bad as I was expecting. I think part of the issue is because it's about a community that only interacts amongst itself. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with this stuff is when, when you get white people involved <laughs> and then they become well racist. So it opens in really, I mean, it is unbelievably formulaic as yeah. these go. Yeah. Opens with a days of your story mm-hmm. about three brothers. It's got a rubbish, a rubbish stampede in it by Caribou. Just apropos of nothing, I'm going to tell you this story. I took my nephew to the theatre in London on Friday night 
and we arrived at Euston Station, which isn't my usual station that I use, but we arrived at Euston Station walking off the train. Mm. And Euston's one of those stations where they announce the platform right at the last freaking minute. It's awful. And so so our train pulls in, so obviously it goes up on the board Mm -hmm. that that's the train. (laughs) So my nephew and I are walking off because it was quite an empty train Mm -hmm. going into London at that time. And about (laughs) 700 people start coming towards us in the other direction. And my nephew said, oh, God, it's like that bit of the Lion King. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, you're going to be washed away. Anyway, yeah, so these three brothers, one of the youngest one, um, who is played by Joaquin Phoenix, is coming of age. He's going to become a man. He gets his totem, which is a bear. And that's because he is going to be all about love. One of his older brothers is all about wisdom and the other one's all about leadership. And he's got the umpies about love because he's the bear of love. Yeah. I mean, how do they go together? No, I mean, it's baffling. Absolutely baffling. But the old lady tells him he's all about love and he takes a very, you know. He's not happy with it. Fuck that. I want to be about man. What follows is quite a lot of stilted dialogue that's way too modern a lot of falling. I think this film possibly has more falling in it than even Tarzan. Now, speaking of Tarzan, you know what else this film contains? Oh, uh, I do. <laughs> Go on, Jen. <laughs> Phil fucking Collins. Phil Collins. And Montage. a lot of it. <laughs> there is a lot. Apparently, he got the hump because he wanted to sing it all. But they and, had to let Tina turn around. They had to let Tina turn to do the worst song that she's yeah. ever done in her career. Can't forgive her for it. Awful. No. Anyway, what happens is... To prove that he's all manly, our hero starts a fight with a bear, basically, by throwing stones at her. Why not? And, oh, it doesn't go well, does it? And ultimately, it leads to the death of his older brother, who sacrifices himself by dying in, let's guess, a long fall. Yeah, so far, so Disney. (laughs) So then, (laughs) having not learnt the the error of his ways, he then decides to pursue that bear and kill it, Mm -hmm. which he does. And at this point, the spirits... I missed that bit. And that is integral. (laughs) The spirits in the sky, right, come down and transmogrify, change, whatever, change him into a bear. Yeah. Right? And the middle brother turns up and sees this bear and then thinks, oh, he's killed two of my brothers now. I'm going to chase that bear. So he's now trapped as a bear, which we've seen in Brave, which, to be fair, comes after this. Brave does it better. Brave does most things better. Okay. This doesn't happen until about half an hour in. Everything that happens before then is really earnest. Mm. So then there's like a distinct shift in tone where it becomes like, hey, buddy, fun. And he basically, he meets a little baby bear who is called... Coda. Coda. Well done. We've remembered one name. Yeah. And some Canadian moose, who I suppose you could possibly say is the closest thing to racism in it, because they just are stupid. I mean, I think the uh, I think the interchangeable ethnic music is a bit of racism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. We'll have it for the Lion King. We'll have it for that. They're all, you know. So basically, they go off to meet all the other bears and hunt salmon, because that's apparently on the way to the mountain that will get him changed back from a bear. They pass, well, what I can only describe is thousands and thousands of waterfalls. Like, (laughs) Disney really spunks it way out on the waterfalls in this one. And somewhere along this journey, it suddenly occurs to our hero that the bear that he has killed is, in fact, the mother of the bear that has attached himself to him. And 
he decides to stay a bear and look after him because... Controversial life choices. Yeah, and that is a happy ending. I do have some questions about where his next girlfriend is coming from. You've really got to rethink what you find attractive if you go there and go, yeah, I live as a bear. That'd be fine. I thought there were bits of it that were a little bit sweet, to be honest, towards the end. I know, maybe I was in a funny mood. No, 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 I... Do you feel on... I cried. I, yeah. like, bawled. Really? Yeah, I actually bawled. Yeah, well, I can see that, because, like I say, I thought it was was sweet, and that's that's pretty outrageous statement for me to be making. I liked that baby bear, yeah. even though he had a persistently blocked nose. Yeah, he was very sweet. And the message that you should take responsibility for your actions is probably one of the more positive messages that we could be giving the country at the moment. <coughs> Brexit. Um, <laughs> So, yes, I thought there were actually good things in it. The little bit at the end where they actually had some proper jokes in the little clips at the end, I mm. thought they were some of those jokes were actually genuinely funny. So there were bits that made me laugh. There were bits that made me think it was a bit sad. And there were bits that were maybe a bit too much like The Lion King or some other stuff. But I don't know. What did you make of it? I So when it started, I was like, oh, fucking hell. This is awful. And I've, you know, so the bit where he's like the old man telling the story, fully expected him to say, a boy who desperately wanted to be a bear. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I was totally expecting him to say that. He didn't. He wanted to be a man. Um, and then controversially wanted to be a bear. So, you know, it's gone full circle there. I was anticipating disaster within seconds because it was so formulaic extremely predictable as soon as the little bear starts chatting about like i i got this story like it was a really cold day and you're like oh it's your mum yeah (laughs) and and lo and behold it is but i found that little bear very endearing Mm. i did think it was a bit like it was like the Dr. Urka of Disney films. It didn't really know what it wanted to be. Yeah, it yeah. didn't really understand what its niche in the market was. Like, am I really serious or am I like, have I just got like a cute bear? Yeah. It, you know. It did also, I thought the ending was a bit odd in the way we were like, yeah, he's become a bear, you know. Hey, celebrate. But his brother, who was kind of the middle brother, who was kind of p- p- portrayed as the baddie. Bit of a dick. Yeah, well, yeah. but you would when you think both of your brothers have been killed by a bear. And but, then, but he was a bit of a dick in the first place, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a bit mean to him. Yeah, I think that's brothers, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. But he sort of blamed him for the death of Big Brother. Yeah, well, it was in his theory. Fault. Yeah, all right, got him over a barrel there. Yeah, but, um, but then everybody was like, "Hey, it's really happy." But then he got no brothers. He's got a bear, brother. He's got a brother yeah. bear. Well, how long do bears live? They're quite big. I'm guessing a while. I don't but know. But I'm guessing that they don't take your mum to the supermarket when she's retired and useful things that people no. can do. No, and also they are at risk of... Because, like, what the other people in the tribe, they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, that's old matey bear. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave him alone. Yeah. I mean, that's he fine. could, like, literally die at any moment. Yeah. Yeah. They're just going to be like, oh, it's a bear. Let's yeah. get him. So it's a risky business. <laughs> It's I yeah I'm gonna say it was a controversial life choice. Yeah. <laughs> so, what score are you giving it? I am going to give it two. Oh mate, do you think it deserves more? I think it deserves a solid three. 
Okay, controversial. Well, let's meet in the middle. Let's say two and a half. Okay. Two and a half what? Two and a half um, Phil Collins songs out of five. Which is the best amount of Phil Collins songs out? No, actually, no Phil Collins songs out of five would be better. But there you have it. Standard issue for all women.